Well, hey, grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. One of my favorite things I get to do as a pastor is premarital counseling. Yeah, I do a lot of counseling situations that are difficult, that are frustrating, that are kind of emotionally taxing, which, you know, that's part of the job. But premarital counseling is great. It's fun. It's joyful. You know why? Because they like each other. Yeah. Engaged couples, they're, they're still infatuated with each other. They're in love, and their fiancé can do no wrong. They're just so excited, and they're coming to my office, walking on air. And typically what I do with an engaged couple is take them through a book that talks about having a Christ-centered marriage. And one of the chapters in the book is on a very important topic. It's on conflict. And it's always kind of difficult because engaged couples don't have a whole lot of conflict. There's usually some minor tiffs and disagreements. But if the couple hasn't been together very long and they've just fallen in love, you know, everything's still kind of a fairy tale. That's how it was when I first met my wife, Amber. I thought I had won the lottery, and I did. But I could not fathom being mad at her. Like, I couldn't imagine us having a a serious fight. I was so happy, and she was so happy, and everybody was so happy. But I learned, as all married couples do, that conflict is a part of marriage. Okay, Amber and I, we're not yellers. We don't do the silent treatment. We don't slam doors. But we do have times that we get frustrated and have to talk things out, come to an agreement, usually after I said something really dumb. But, you know, when I meet with engaged couples, I always want to make sure they understand that even though it may be hard to see right now, there will be disagreements and conflict. You, as a sinner, are marrying another sinner. And there's a right way to deal with that conflict. There's a sinful way to respond to conflict, and there's a God-honoring way. And this is true For all of life, everywhere people are, there will be conflict. When sinners get together, it turns out they sin. But as followers of Jesus, how we respond to conflict becomes an opportunity for us to actually display the gospel. And that's what I want to show you this morning as we continue our trek through the book of 1 Peter. You'll remember the title of our series is Living in Exile. Peter began his letter by helping these believers understand their position in Christ. They were elect exiles sojourning through this life with a living hope. And then Peter began to show them how their identity as exiles should impact the way they live. It should impact how they love one another. It should impact how they relate to authority and society and in their jobs and in their marriages. And and today, we're going to see Peter address how their identity as exiles should impact the way they treat one another, specifically as they deal with conflict. So look with me now at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter wrote this in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those 
who do evil. Amen. You can be seated. Layered underneath these verses are multiple references to Jesus. Remember, Peter spent three years of his life as one of Jesus' closest disciples. So all throughout this letter, we see that influence, even when Jesus is not mentioned directly. And and we see that here. This attitude, the way of relating to people here, this is a radical display of Christ-like character. It comes from the heart of Jesus. So the point is, we should imitate Jesus in our relationships, and especially when it comes to conflict. Because doing so not only gives Jesus glory, but it will actually lead others to see his beauty as well. So let's break down this passage. And as we do, I want to give you two ways that we can imitate Jesus in conflict. Here's the first. Number one, exiles imitate Jesus in their love for other exiles. Look at verse 8 again. Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We established a few weeks ago this kind of language for believers to love one another. It's all throughout the New Testament. But why do the New Testament writers feel the need to write this kind of message in every single letter to every single church? Here's why. Because they needed it. (laughs) They needed it. The early church had problems and and conflict. That's why it's so interesting to me when people say, oh, we just need to get back to the way the early church was. I'm like, have you read 1 Corinthians? (laughs) Some of the things that were going on, like some things that I'm... It makes me nervous to even speak of. I mean, these early churches, they had their fair share of issues. And in some ways, this should make us feel better. Because this tells us that there is no perfect church. If you find one, you'll mess it up when you get there. But none of us get it right. Until heaven, we're going to have church problems. But more importantly, this should challenge us. Because even though the early churches had struggles, they were not allowed to just ignore them, but they were encouraged to grow and to change and to be unified. And that's what we see here. That word finally means Peter is summing up this section. He's been writing about the need to live out our faith as exiles so a non-believing world can see our good works and glorify God. And he gives us here five things, five things that we need to have as the church. And notice he says, all of you. All right, nobody's exempt from this, no matter how young, how old, how new of a Christian you are, how long you've been in church. This is something all of us must strive to display. These five things. Here's the first. He says, we must have unity of mind. This phrase literally means thinking in harmony. How do we do that? Does it mean we just need to agree on everything all the time? Well, no, that's not possible. We are Baptists, after all. The way to have unity of mind is to spend our thoughts focused on the big things that we agree on, to major on the majors, not to major on the minors. I mean, we've all heard of churches that have split over the color carpet in the sanctuary. At previous churches I've served, I've heard complaints about the music, the sermon, the flowers in front of the pulpit, the pastor's wife's hair color. True story. The pencils in the pews not being sharpened. Oh, the sanctuary is too hot. No, it's too cold. And on and on. Look, this spirit of complaining and criticizing does not lead to unity of mind. No, it leads to insanity of mind. To have unity of mind, we must put aside our preferences and lay them at the cross. We must put our mind on the things that are important, that are primary, like the gospel and the mission and our unity. 
Like if we stop focusing on those things and we let all these little things distract us, we're going to miss our mission. I think it's important to note that this starts in the mind. That's where most sins start. That's where most division starts. One of the most dreaded ways to start a conversation is, Pastor, you know, I've been thinking. (laughs) Some people need to stop thinking, okay? No, I'm, I'm kidding, mostly. But my point is that our thoughts need to be directed at unity and harmony and building up. If our thoughts are unified, then the rest of us will follow. So today, as you sit in church, as you talk to people, and even as you leave, what are you thinking about? Do you have a unity of mind? Next thing he says, we need to have a sympathy. Sympathy is simply caring for each other. It's to feel for someone, especially in a difficult time. This is similar to the fourth thing that Peter lists, which is a tender heart. Does he want us to be a bunch of softies? Well, kind of. There's nothing wrong with emotions, but this word could also be translated compassion. And sympathy and compassion are very closely related. The idea is that we have a deep care for one another, a care that moves us, that causes us to feel deeply. You know, compassion is a word often used to describe Jesus. He would look at people and he would have compassion on them, sometimes even to the point of tears. He hurt for people. He entered into their pain. We as believers should be the same way, especially with one another. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. We as a church are to be so united, so caring for one another, that when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. And when one of us celebrates, all of us celebrate. So when one of us gets cancer or loses a loved one or loses a job, we are able to come up alongside that person and say, hey, you are not in this alone, but we've got you. We've got you. Man, if that's how the church functioned, I think our conflict would be much different. If we were actually walking through life with one another and knew each other and had sympathy and compassion, man, our disagreements would look much different. Because it's hard to sin against someone you're praying for. It's hard to feel anger and compassion towards someone at the same time. So we need compassion and sympathy. Next, he says, in the church, we must have brotherly love. We spent a whole week talking about loving one another, but I'll just point out this is brotherly and sisterly love. This is family love. We should treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and this should inform how we deal with conflict. The way I disagree with one of my four sisters is going to be different than the way I disagree with a stranger because I know at the end of the day that's my sister. She's going to remain my sister regardless of how much we disagree or think differently. We can argue and we can fight, but bottom line, that doesn't change the fact that she is my sister. That's how we should be. we got to have brotherly and sisterly love. And lastly, the fifth thing he lists here is a humble mind. Let me tell you, humility may be the most important thing you bring to church every Sunday. If you do not come to church with a humble mind, you are going to miss what God has for you. Humility is so important. Humility is considering others as more important than yourself. And that right there is the end of all conflict. Because conflict comes from pride. It comes from me wanting my way and being mad that you didn't give me my way. 
Conflict is two people who are both focused on themselves, but humility is the ultimate conflict killer. You can't fight for your way when you're giving up your way to someone else, when you're considering someone else more important. Humility says, hey, even though I disagree with you and I feel this way, I'm going to choose to give up and go with you instead. But hang on, that, that means I lose. I don't like to lose. That's exactly what that means. You do lose. You lose because you recognize that loving your brother and sister in Christ is more important than winning. The unity of the church is more important than getting your way. Listen, the only competition that should take place in the church is the race to the bottom, the sprint to last place. Romans 12.10 says, hey, outdo one another in showing honor. So we should fight one another. We should fight one another to see who can honor the other the most. Say, so, hey, I'm going to honor you more. No, I'm going to honor you more. No, I'm going to honor you more. Like That's the attitude that we need. And again, it starts in our minds. It's a humble mind. So when you come to church on Sunday, are you thinking about what you're going to get from church or what you can give? Are you showing up looking to be served, to sit back and have everything catered to you, or are you looking to serve others? And then on Monday through Saturday, when we get in our busy routines and schedules, do you have any time to think about other people, to serve other people in our church? The goal is to imitate Jesus and our love for other exiles. That's first. Here's the second way we imitate Jesus. Exiles imitate Jesus and their love for their enemies. And here's where things get really radical. Jesus said it's easy to love people that love you back. It's easy to love your family, your friends, your church. But what about the people who hate you? What about the people who hate what you believe, who, who want to eliminate Christianity? Those are the people we fight, right? Look at verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Remember, these believers were facing hostility from the culture around them, much worse than we do. They were being ostracized, ridiculed, mistreated. They had a Roman Empire that did not like them. So these churches were experiencing evil and reviling. That word revile refers to abusive or insulting talk. And here's how Peter tells them to respond to this treatment. Bless them. Don't pay back evil for evil. Bless them. This idea goes against everything we feel inside, everything we were taught, everything that seems fair. Man, when someone attacks you, you attack them back. When someone hits you, you hit them back twice as hard. You get even, get revenge, stick up for yourself. But the Bible consistently rebukes that mindset and tells us the opposite. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Let me read for you a bunch of other verses here from the New Testament. Romans 12, 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5.38-44. He said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said you shall love your enemy, your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, it's, it's all over the place. Peter's just reinforcing this idea, this idea he heard straight from the mouth of Jesus. On the very night Jesus was being murdered for nothing, he was completely innocent, yet he was being hung on a cross. He didn't fight back. He didn't use all his supernatural power to strike people down, but he actually cried out on the cross. Do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look, we know this is radical. This is difficult, and yet this is one of the most ignored commands in the Bible because it seems so contrary to our nature. When someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Pray for the people who hate you. Love the people who want to hurt you. Man, this sounds to me like we're just supposed to be doormats. And that's the objection, right? If I live this way, people are just going to take advantage of me. This isn't strength. This is weakness. If we don't stand up for ourselves, who will? If we don't fight for Christians, who will? I get it. And that's what our flesh says. And here's how Peter answers it. He gives us three reasons to love our enemies. Number one, he says we love our enemies because we've been called to it. It's right there in verse 9. For you were called to this. We don't love and bless our enemies because we feel like it or because it works or because it feels good. We do it because God has called us to do it. It's a matter of obedience, and to do otherwise, to get revenge, is sin. That means if someone says something rude towards you, for you to say something rude back is wrong. That means if someone criticizes you at your job and you criticize them back, that's wrong. And this means if someone walks all over you like a doormat, you pray for them. Why? Because you've been called to a higher purpose. You're a child of God, and you're to demonstrate the gospel to the world to show that I follow God, not what feels right. Second, we love our enemies so that we may obtain a blessing. Now, at first blush, this sounds like works righteousness. We have been so well trained to know that we're saved by grace alone that any talk of obtaining a blessing, it just sounds wrong. Don't worry, Peter's not saying that blessing our enemies is going to earn our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. We know it's a gift from God, and Peter's already said that God is the one who causes us to be born again by his mercy. But the New Testament teaches this idea that if we have been truly born again, good works will follow. We're going to live a certain way. And one of those ways is loving our enemies, so we will obtain a blessing because it's a sign, it's evidence that we're saved. But what's the blessing? Well, I think it's primarily a future blessing. It's eternal life. So we can love our enemies because we know that no matter what they do to us, they cannot change our eternal destiny. 
We're citizens of heaven. We're safe and secure even in death. We don't have to get even or get revenge or earn our standing because our standing is found in the fact that we will be blessed beyond measure in heaven. But I also think this is present blessing. I believe if we do live out our faith in Jesus, there are certain blessings we receive in this life. There's joy and peace and contentment and obedience. And this is what verses 10 through 12 are all about. Peter quotes this section of a Psalm 34. This is a Psalm written by David when God rescued him from his enemies. And here's what David said. Peter quotes him in verses 10 through 11. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. He says, hey, you want to love life and and see good days? Then don't talk bad. (laughs) Be good. Pursue peace. This is just good old common sense. Life is better when you follow Jesus and treat others like he did. You know, in the moment, we think getting even and hitting back is what's going to make things better. But does it? No. We know that. Returning evil with evil doesn't help us feel better. It doesn't help the situation. Bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, these things harm you much more than they harm the person you're upset with. So there is a present and future blessing when we love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. And third and lastly, Peter says we love our enemies because we know God will take care of us. This comes from 1 Peter 3.12. It's the last verse he quotes from Psalm 34. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the ultimate reason that we don't have to return evil for evil. This is the reason we don't have to worry about anyone sticking up for us Christians. Why? Because God's got this. His eyes are on us. He's watching us and he hears our prayers. So when someone harms us or threatens us, God will take care of it. God is a God of justice, and he will avenge us. We don't have to even the score because God has got this, for his eyes are on the righteous. So when we face conflict, we have an opportunity. We can do what comes natural to us and and sin against God and sin against people, or we can imitate Jesus and be a witness to a watching world. I learned the truths of this message from personal experience. When I was in the seventh grade, I remember for the first time in my life, my mom did not want me going to church. Normally, that wasn't an option, but she had heard that our church's monthly business meeting that night could get ugly. I told her I was old enough to handle it, so after a lot of begging, she agreed to let me sit in the balcony, which also never happened. I still remember that night. Looking down on the congregation below, I I realized there were a lot more people at this business meeting than normal. The congregation was divided. Literally, there were two sides, two distinct groups of people sitting on opposite ends. The two sides went back and forth as people went down to the microphone down front and voiced either their support or concern for the direction of the church. Some shouted, some cried. Some quoted scriptures, some quoted the bylaws. Some pleaded for unity, some called for change. It seemed like everyone had an opportunity to make their case, everyone except for one person sitting on the very front row. Our pastor 
sat directly in front of the microphone, five feet away, never saying a word, never even shaking his head. He just quietly listened as people from his own flock hurled insults and accusations at him. I realized in that moment why my mom didn't want me there that night. It's hard watching your pastor endure that. And it's especially hard when your pastor's your dad. I remember being angry. I felt betrayed. I grew up in this church. I knew these people. They rocked me in the nursery. They taught me in Sunday school. They were supposed to be my family, and it felt like they were attacking me. After a season of conflict, my dad, he made the decision to resign and walk away. And I remember saying to my dad, Dad, why don't we fight? We can win this. We can take down these bad people and, and stay at our church, and I'll never forget. My dad said something to the effect of, he said, you know, we could, but that's not what Jesus did. And that's not what we need to do. It's time to walk away for the sake of the church. That season of my life in middle school had a profound impact on me and the way I think about the church. I'm telling you, if it were not for my parents and their example, I'm not sure I would be here today. I would be one of those statistics of kids that grew up in the church and walked away. But my parents' example, in the midst of conflict, their imitation of Christ, their love for people, even the ones against them, their choice to bless as they were reviled was an incredible testimony to me. And I'm so glad today me and all four of my sisters know the Lord Jesus and are still involved in the church. Look, there are those in this world and even in this country who oppose Christianity, who revile the church. There are forces at work against us. There are many who think what we do and what we believe is just ridiculous, but we're not called to fight a culture war or a political war. Look, the war's already won. Jesus Christ is victorious, so we can lay down our swords and rather bless those who are against us. Even in your own life, there will be people who just don't like you. People, no matter what you do or what you say, they're always going to find something wrong, and they're going to speak badly of you, and they may even do evil towards you. But we are not called to get revenge, to prove ourselves, or to be right. We're called to lay down our rights and love like Jesus. Yeah, it's difficult. It's radical. It's contrary. But that's why we're exiles. And that's our call, to imitate Jesus in conflict. Would you go with me to, in, to the Lord in prayer?